This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We get to take a little bit of a break from COVID talk right now. And we get to do it with somebody who I used to bug regularly when we were both students at Western University. And this is going back a few years. Pippa Hurst graduated in the mid-90s from Western. I did the same sort of thing. And Pippa's life has been absolutely remarkable, especially over the last five and a half years when, as we said before the break, she has lived in Las Vegas, Spain, Harlem, Toronto, has moved 250 times. And I'm sure you've been doing the math thinking, wait a minute, there's still 365 days in a year, right? That hasn't changed. It's not like 10,000 or something. No, 365. I thought so. So 250 times in five years, that's, that's a lot of times. And the key in all of this is Pippa enjoys not living with people, but living by herself. So that kind of makes you think, okay, well, well, how does that math work? She is someone who may be able to write not just one book of memoirs, but 26 at least. Please welcome to London Live, my very good friend, Pippa Hurst. Pippa, how are things? Good. How are you, Mike? Not bad. We're not <laughs> uh, in we're not in the dorm room at Westminster College anymore. That's that's where the two of us first met. Just it to is. give full disclosure on all of this. In <laughs> fact, I think that's now a science laboratory. My kids were running track at Western. I decided to take a walk over to Westminster College while they were doing that. This is years ago. And it wasn't a residence anymore. I think it had plants and telescopes and microscopes and all kinds of stuff. So I don't know what's going on in there, but definitely not first-year students getting to know each other. So let's talk a little bit about the last five and a half years of your life, even though we could go back probably a lot further. But your life took a turn, changed five and a half years ago. What happened? Uh, well, about six years ago, it, uh, I was assaulted and robbed outside my house in Toronto. Um, and so, um, about six months later, I started living a completely nomadic existence, uh, hence all of the moves. Uh, it's just, it was a a big life perspective change and, uh, I was pretty determined to not go back to anything I'd been doing before and, uh, and push forward to something new. Whatever that looked like. <laughs> so robbed and assaulted. Were you hurt? Uh, the guy punched me in the face because uh, my initial reaction was just to scream at the top of my lungs. <laughs> uh, and so when I turned to face him, he uh, I think he either wanted to shut me up or get me to not see him or whatever the case was, and he punched me. <laughs> But I wasn't I wasn't hurt in the sense of other than, you know, I've never been punched in the face before. And that's a bit of a shock. <laughs> but at the same time, you decided to make some decisions to to make some pretty drastic changes in life. So to live a nomadic lifestyle, when you first embarked on this, what did you expect that that would be like? Uh, do you know, it actually sort of happened organically. It wasn't um, necessarily a decision to live, you know, sort of a homeless nomadic lifestyle. It was to not go back to a regular paying job that I'd done many times before in different forms and, and ways. I mean, I always joke about the fact that I've had more jobs than birthdays. So 
I know a lot about various positions and I know what did and didn't work for me. And, and that might've been the easy route just to, to keep working at a job I didn't like and, uh, you know, get myself situated again, but it just, it kind of shook me up and I thought, no, I want to write a book. I want to finish doing what I'm doing with this project I was working on. And so it just wound up that, uh, I became homeless in the process because I wasn't working uh, a paid job at the time. Okay. So where <laughs> were you at this time? You were still in Toronto as this kind of unfolded in front of you. Yeah, I was in Toronto. And then because I stopped working, uh, I was evicted <laughs> from my apartment. I think I magically had this delusional idea that, that things were going to work out for me somehow. And that was the universe's way of helping me was was getting me out of that city, out of that situation. I uh, I stayed at my parents' house for a few months while they were down south in Florida. I finished writing the book I was working on, and I left and thought, I'm going to go and publish this book, and my whole life is going to start again. And then I became homeless and nomadic, and that took over. And it's a whole Talk- other book. <laughs> I'm sure. It might, like I said, it might be a whole other 26 books. It's a it's an encyclopedic volume. It is. Let's, let's kind of go through the the roadmap of what happened. So you were in Toronto and you leave your parents' house. Where did you go next? How did this begin? Uh, I, a lot of artists, I have a lot of artist friends, theater performers, you name it, a lot of people that go on tour. Um, and so they sublet their apartments out when that happens. And, uh, and I went and I sublet um, a friend of mine's apartment for a week in Toronto And then when they got back, I stayed with them for a little while, a few days here and there. And then I hopped around from friend to friend in Toronto and got a bit tired of of imposing myself on other people and wound up in a diner for a couple of nights. (laughs) Um, The Lakeview Diner down at Dundas in Ossington. And I just sat there for nine hours at a time through the night uh, doing a lot of writing and trying to figure out what my next steps were going to be. We're talking and, with Pippa uh, Hurst, and we're, we're telling <laughs> Pippa's story over the last five and a half years. She was robbed and assaulted in front of her house, and and it has made a, a very big change in her life. So there you are. You're doing some writing. You're you're trying to figure out what's next. What came next? Um, I'm trying to think. I put a call out on Facebook um, and let people know I was in transition and looking for housing. Uh, and some, I've had, I had a couple of uh, very good girlfriends in the city who are also fellow artists and go out of town quite a bit, offer me their homes when they were out of town. Um, and so I did that quite a bit back and forth. Um, and then it's all a bit of a blur at this stage. I mean, eventually I became a pet and house sitter. So I started staying in people's homes and looking after their animals while they were out of town. So that gave me money and a place to live by myself. <laughs> with animals. Um, and, and in you then ventured out of Toronto. When did you leave Toronto? Um, through Facebook, again, I was offered a pet sitting gig with uh, friends of mine in New York. And I also went back and forth to New York quite a bit to stay with other friends who live there. Um, and uh, I'd always do that on the overnight bus, cheapest way to travel. And um, yeah, so I ended up in uh, Long Island City looking after a friend's dog and Harlem looking after a friend's dog. Um, and then I went to Vegas in 2017 because I had a, an idea for a documentary project. Um, and 
yeah, I went to Spain because a friend of mine uh, offered me money to support me writing my book about this adventure. So I've sort of hopped all over the place. <laughs> and all the while, what would you say your allotment of money to live on per day had to be? Um, I would say up until this past year, uh, an average of $22. It ranged from $15 a day when I was just starting out on the adventure to $22 a day on average. And where would that money come from? Would it be from house sitting and, and pet sitting primarily? Primarily house and pet sitting, yeah. However, I was generating uh, generating an income at that point. But then you had to make it stretch. And we can all do the math and think, okay, $15, $22 a day. That's a sandwich at a restaurant and a water in some places yeah. in big cities. In New York and Toronto especially. How do you make that stretch? <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's what um, the boxing coach uh, that I met in uh, in New York at one of the clubs there, he's the one who trained uh, Hillary Swank for Million Dollar Baby. I just happened to meet him when I was doing research, and um, he said, uh, how, he said, I just had a sandwich for lunch. How, how do, you, do you live on $22 a day? That's how much my sandwich costs. Um, it's interesting. I don't know. You find different ways. I, I'd have to go back into all my notes. And I mean, housing is the big thing, right? That's the main thing that costs money. Uh, and I wasn't paying for housing. So and transportation was all either on foot or on public transit. So, you know, and then you you make ends meet with whatever food you can find. Wow. We're talking with Pippa Hurst. Here's the thing. We're in a pandemic right now, and we are filled with unknowns and uncertainties, but a lot of us can still fall back on being in the same place, being surrounded by the same social network, keeping in our social bubble. If you're traveling around and changing cities and sometimes even countries as much as you are, you don't have that, do you? you you're living life with unknowns and uncertainties. What's that been like? Uh, it's been very interesting, very insightful. Uh, like I'm, I've been learning a lot, um, about just basically going with the flow and, you know, my mantra now is be where you are. <laughs> so be with the people you're with, be in the city you're in, be in the country you're in, um, and sort of be here now kind of idea. Um, and I'm I'm a very social person. I'm, I like to live alone because I am I am also very introverted. I really need my time to myself. But when I'm out and about, I have no problem making conversation with whoever's nearby. So I never really struggle with uh, with making new friends and and learning a lot from them along the way. I've got a 300 page script right now of all the conversations I've had in the last five years. So who knows what 300 page with that, script but... of conversations. Just conversations. Yeah, people of all walks of life that I meet on overnight buses to New York City or, you know, at the airport on my way to Spain, at the local grocery store, <laughs> you name it. And here's the thing. You talk about taking overnight buses or being in situations that I'm sure take you into spots where being a, a single female might be dangerous. You've done this as... As a single female, have has there ever been a, a moment when when you felt completely afraid or or when you felt you were in danger? You know, it's interesting because being mugged outside my home in Toronto, one thirty a.m. on a Sunday, 
uh, that really shook me up, but I refused to allow it to change my way of being and the fact that, you know, I would go to my friend's house a 10-minute walk away and stay there until 2 in the morning and walk home on my own, uh, go out at night on my own, go out and do these things. So I just refused to allow myself uh, to feel that way. I'm still obviously aware and cautious, and there was one incident in Harlem with a couple guys that was a little bit uh, frightening for me, but I managed to work my way out of that one. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, ended up seeing the guy on the street uh, a few days later and giving him a hug. So it all worked itself out. But um, no, not, not particularly. I haven't, I've sort of, I don't know, I guess I've been somewhat fearless, whether that's stupidity or, <laughs> or what, I don't know. I, uh, I haven't ever really felt unsafe oddly but enough. at the same time there's a, there's a beauty in that because you know we should all be able to rely on each other as humans to say hey we're gonna look after one another is this a is this a case of of you being able to find people who are are able to help you out again and again does that ever does that supply ever feel like it may run out uh it has a few times but it's uh it's just Again, I, I've, my social network has been amazing. Um, friends have been amazing. I, the, the kindness of strangers is is unbelievable. It's it's um, it's reassuring actually to to have had the experiences I've had because it does show um, that side of humanity. <laughs> I've had a lot of help, and I'm and I'm incredibly grateful. I wouldn't have been able that to right do this there, on my own. <laughs> that's amazing to hear in itself. You have you have designs on obviously putting this down and and turning it into the story that it is or the stories that it is. You've done everything from sit beside a woman smoking crack in Toronto to to sitting in Floyd Mayweather Senior's home. So the, <laughs> there seems to be a lot in between those two things. There certainly is. <laughs> There certainly so is. where are you? Where are you now? Let's let's finish up with where you are now, and we may have to check back in the future at some <laughs> point, Peppa, and find out what's happening. But right now, what are you up to? Right now, I have uh, stabilized myself a little bit by um, subleasing an apartment in Montreal, uh, where it is much less expensive to live. Um, I have been able to get myself a car in this last year. Um, and so I have a little bit more ability, more mobility, a little bit more freedom. Uh, and the hope is that through this sort of consistency of living and not, not moving around so much, I'll be able to get a little bit of work done. <laughs> well, it's remarkable. So thank you for sharing at least this part of your story where you go from being a graduate in, at Western University in the mid-90s <laughs> to moving 250 times in five and a half years and having all kinds of stories to go with it. Pippa, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Mike. Great. Please keep safe. Guys. I will. <laughs> Take care. Take care. That's Pippa right, Hurst. Pippa graduated from Western in the mid-90s and went through, as she says, she's had as many jobs as she's had birthdays. And next thing you know, she decided, you know, this this isn't this isn't for me. This isn't the way it's working and ends up living kind of a, a nomadic lifestyle, homeless lifestyle almost. And from there, 
She's now got the makings of what could be a very interesting story. Great to have you with us on a Monday. Coming up tomorrow, City Council is meeting. And City Council is meeting to talk about Plantation Road. And this has been a pretty long and involved story. And we get an opportunity to recap the story and see exactly where this heads next. It began when a then nine-year-old named Lila noticed Plantation Road as a street in London. And from there, we've now reached city council status. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is someone who's been watching this story unfold the entire way. Kristen Daly is the mom of Lila, who has since turned 10. Kristen, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Thank you for having me. Well, we had a chance to talk with Lila a few months ago, and uh, 10 years old, going on 38. I have no idea how somebody that young can be that aware and that motivated to do what she's been doing. Can you take us back to when Lila kind of first became involved in this story? Absolutely. Um, She has always been my old soul. That's what I've always called her. Um, She is so aware of how things affect not just her, but other people, and how things that may affect her affect other people differently. So uh, she is an avid reader. She loves reading history. Um, And she was reading a book um, about the Underground Railroad. And there's a chapter called Life on the Plantation and describes how slaves were treated in plantations. And from that, she really started asking a lot of questions. Why is this still okay? Why is this street named this when there are so many awful um, connotations to the word? And from there, it, it could have ended, but it didn't. It could have been, hey, why does this? And, and the answer could have been, well, that's been the name of Plantation Road for a long time. And instead, what happened? Um, she first wrote um, to our counselor back when she was nine, about a year and a half ago, and, and kind of asked, you know, why is it called this, and, and should it still be called this for, for these reasons? And she spoke to a lot of our neighbors and went door to door, um, and we had a lot of support from people on the street. Um, but there was a, a barrier. There's $512 just to have the petition go to city council. Um, and so she doesn't have that type of money, you know, just to be heard. Um, and so she, you know, was quietly working away on it for a little while. And then after everything that happened with George Floyd, she said, okay, enough is enough. What else can I do? Um, so she started the change.org petition. Um, and from that, she gained a lot of support here in London, on our street, as far as Toronto. The Caribbean community in Toronto is incredibly supportive of her. Um, she has the support of the African-Canadian Federation of London and Area. Um, and Councillor Pelosa picked it up and said, hey, you know, th- th- this is something that needs to change. And from there, that's where it's gone. Well, it's kind of gone through committees. Now it's come back. Have you checked the petition recently? Do you know how many signatures it ended up getting? The last check, it was 4,128. Whoa, that's incredible. And how did Lila feel about that? 
Uh, she she believes she would maybe have a hundred or a hundred and fifty. Um, she she feels very proud, but also kind of thinking, why isn't everyone signing this? <laughs> why is <laughs> and that's that becomes the ultimate big question, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, if she expected a hundred, but then all of a sudden you get four thousand, and you wonder, well, why aren't we at four hundred and fifty thousand? So yeah. this does now go before council tomorrow night. How closely has Lila been following the story as it's made its way through City Hall? I mean, this has been an education on its own. Oh, absolutely. She knows all about um, committees. She's learned all about the process of um, Elizabeth, was, or pardon me, Councillor Pelosa was speaking with her and explaining everything to her about all the inner workings of committee meetings and council meetings. So she has certainly ha- learned a lot in her time off of school. She hasn't come to you and said, you know what, Mom, I'm going to run for city council the next time we have an election. Has she said anything like that? Not not yet, um, but <laughs> it, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, she has a bit of a tender heart, though, so I'm not sure how well she would do with uh, all of the criticism. Ah, <laughs> uh, gotcha, but gotcha. Well... Something that makes her, because of her tenderheartedness, she looks around and says, this isn't right, you know, this isn't... This could be upsetting so many people. She has a really great um, friend who is from Jamaica who actually attends, uh, there's a school on Plantation Road. And she said to me, I wonder how she feels going into this school on Plantation Road. It is remarkable that somebody, again, that young can have that much of a sense for people outside of, I always describe it as the end of your own fingertips. Too many people do not live life anywhere beyond their own fingertips, what they can reach, what they can see. That is exactly. that is remarkable. It's amazing. She is a remarkable, remarkable kid. And uh, she was born this way, really. <laughs> I encourage, you know, I, I support her for everything that she does. Um, but this all came from her and, and from how she feels. She um, has been working for so long, and I'll say to her, you know, are you tired of this? And she'll say, well, Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't tired. You know, he kept going, and so am I. That is incredible. Kristen Daly joining us. Mother of Lila, who's now 10 years old and responsible for getting things set for a petition that was picked up by Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa that was taken to committees that has now come back to council and will be going before council tomorrow night asking to change the name of Plantation Road. If there is a name change, has Lila expressed any interest in helping to rename it? She she has, actually. There's um, a lot of... Um... And Councillor Pelosa was speaking about how we could honor, um, you know, black families in our community. And one thing that Lila had said a few months ago was she would love to see it named uh, Josiah Henson Way, um, which Josiah Henson was uh, a slave who escaped and lived, came to Canada and lived near Dresden. And then he had um, a little town there for other escaped slaves uh, and taught them, you know, how to work and educated them and everything. So she thought that that would be a great way to honor him and something that's pretty close to London. That is phenomenal. Now, do you know at all how this plays out, That whether or not that may actually get an opportunity? Uh, it might. I know that Councillor Pelosa was saying that if this does go through, then she would want some input from all the, you know, um, people from the black community to see what type of name that, you know, they would support as well. 
Well, the fact that someone who is 10 years old has been able to get something like this as far as it has come, please congratulate her once again for us. It's, it is absolutely incredible. And here's hoping that Lila takes this passion and, and keeps on using it in life because she's going to do big things. <laughs> I think she will. Kristen, it's, thanks it's for updating us. <laughs> oh, right. tremendous. Thank you keep you so safe, much. and again, please tell Lila congratulations on behalf of all of us. I will. Thank you again. That's Kristen Daly. Lila, 10 years old, 10 years old, has an affinity for reading. That's always a great thing when you're 10. And picks up on history, and from there has actually pushed this into a position where we could see a change to the name Plantation Road. And the idea for Lila to already have an outstanding suggestion uh, this this is what it's all about right this is what it's all about if you're looking to make change by raising your hand and saying this right over here that shouldn't be that's not right for lila to have a friend who is from jamaica and lila to wonder I wonder how she feels going to school a school that exists on plantation road knowing the connotation of the word plantation that's a question she asked. And you know what? That's an inspiration. So thank you, Lila. All kinds of apps exist. Do, have we lost count yet? We have to have millions. We had to have so many to begin with in order for somebody to say, there's an app for that. Oh, you don't like counting sheep at night? Uh, there's an app for that. You wish that you could put a rock star hairstyle on anybody? Oh, there's an app for that. And it got a little ridiculous for a while. It may still be really ridiculous. Hopefully we've weaned things down. But app ethics is something that we absolutely have to look into because, again, there is a lot of mistrust. And if we're to look at something like the COVID Alert app, for instance, if there is mistrust, it means people are not downloading it. And if they don't get to 60 people or 60% of people who have downloaded it, you might as well not have it on your phone because then it's not necessarily working as well as it could be. Dr. Thomas Cook joins us, and he is a privacy, ethics, and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing at Queen's University, as well as a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, great to have you back. Thank you very much. I always chuckle a little bit when you have to read that title out, Mike. I, I commend you for your perseverance, sir. You have earned every one of those <laughs> words. When I have to write down title, it says announcer. And that's it. There are no other words. And so, voice of the London Knights. Okay. All right. Well, then we can toss in a couple of words. But overall, <laughs> no, no. You've earned those words. Let's talk a little bit about how apps maybe earn our trust. If we're to look at apps and some of what they have to go through in order for people to give them the gold stamp of, sure, this is safe, or sure, <laughs> this app is a good idea to download, how's that world look these days? It's a complicated world. Um, I, I think there's two different ways we can try to understand uh, app ethics, and I, I think it's a great conversation that needs to be had these days. Before I, I get into giving some perspectives on how we can think about this, I think it's always helpful to remind ourselves of what we mean by ethics, because even the definition is something of a, a slippery slope. <laughs> I tend to understand ethics as the moral principles that govern how something is done 
how someone behaves or how an activity is conducted. So when we put that in the context of apps, can apps have ethics? We always have to be asking, whose ethics are we actually talking about? There is no universal standard for ethics on an application. Usually that comes down to what the ethical standards are for a company, right? So if we're talking about chorus entertainment versus Facebook <laughs> designing an application, their ethical standards are going to be very different. And often when we look at the, the, the moral makeup of a company's principles or what they have established in a policy, they don't often translate very effectively into practice. So I think that's always really helpful to keep in mind. Morals are a slippery target to begin with because they're subjective. It's an interpretation of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, and that differs from culture to different practical contexts and even on a theoretical level. And then again, we also have to think about whether or not a company says they're doing something ethically versus the translation into practice. And unfortunately, these days, applications are not exactly a bastion of uh, sticking to ethical standards, so to speak, Mike. <laughs> and and that's kind of tough, because if there is no governing body, per se, then it, how do we even have any kind of ethics at all? Aren't these just out the window? Yeah, I, I, to a certain extent, they could be. You know, in certain, in certain realms, in certain uh, categories of applications, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but on the other hand, we also have educators that are very... Uh, driven to establish something like a universal universal ethical code of conduct, so to speak, when it comes to designing apps. Um, if you're a student and you go to Fanshawe, for example, and you're, you're learning how to program, or you're at Western and you're learning about uh, UX design, so you're learning about how to make something that's functional and attractive to people, whether it's an application or a technology, a physical technology itself, you're going to be taking ethics courses. You're going to be learning about how the industry's top people, so to speak, who take uh, privacy and ethics and law very seriously, interpret and teach what a good practice is. And so one of the, the top things that often comes up in these classes and these, these training regimes, Mike, um, is this discussion of dark design. Dark design is really interesting, and if you have a, a moment, I think we should explore this together a little bit. I already like the name, so yeah, let's explore away. <laughs> it's, it, it is something you can take at face value, I think. Dark design really does refer to things that are black and dark colors, dark shades in an application, and this is actually seen as a design faux pas when it comes to using applications, uh, using black backgrounds and using dark shades that um, create heavy contrasts are often perceived by designers as being untrustworthy. There's a, a bit of a psychology, if you will, behind the selection of certain kinds of colors. And uh, secondly, and I think more importantly, it creates an accessibility issue. There's lots of people who can't read and engage an app effectively because of uh, visual disabilities because of learning disabilities and so uh, it's, it's pretty well established in 2020 that using dark color schemes in an application can actually make it exceptionally difficult for certain members of the population to actually use the app itself so i think that's a, a good precursory appraisal if you will of what dark design looks like isn't that interesting and, and designers kind of stay away from it yeah and there's there's another layer to it mike and it, it does get quite a bit darker here. 
dark design is an aesthetic thing. It's a visual thing, but it's, it's also about how you arrange content and how you arrange language as well. And I think this is where dark design gets really, really fascinating as a thing to talk about. And what I mean by this, this language manipulation dimension, Mike, is that it's often attributed as being the opposite of empathetic the opposite of inclusive, um, something that steals agency. So if you can imagine an application that positions people psychologically to be impulsive, to react emotionally to the content that they're seeing, it is said in the industry that you are not positioning the user to make decisions for themselves. I think a really good example of this is what we heard recently with Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal, right? Or a more obvious one might be, and this is one that I actually see in, in teaching um, syllabi quite a bit, Facebook's newsfeed. When you log into Facebook, you're presented with a newsfeed. And the way it works chronologically is that the latest post is at the top of your screen. And as new posts come in, the one that precedes it is pushed downwards towards the bottom of your phone, down towards the ground. And the option or the, the little bar where you can post your own update is at the top of all of it. And what psychologists have been saying about this is that you're tricking the user into feeling that if they don't post at the top, they will fall behind and end up at the bottom of somebody's newsfeed, essentially making them irrelevant. This is a primary example of dark design. Wow. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, and we're talking about app ethics this afternoon. Dr. Cook is a privacy ethics and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing at Queen's University, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's. So in, in being anyone who can download an app, is there anything that we need to kind of do in terms of checks and balances when ethics is brought into the equation? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there are conversely a set of questions that many app ethics and design people uh, push out to app designers to encourage them to stay on track. And I think that these are questions that are helpful for us to become familiar with. So one of the questions asks, for example, if you were the designer, ask yourself, what if everyone did what I'm about to do? If you design something that you feel might not be the best decision you've ever made, how would you feel if everyone else was about to make that decision as well? This is something that can really test somebody's moral compass and see how well it's calibrated. So that's one question. Are people on your applications seen as a means or an ends to something? And this question is really effective because it compels the person designing the app to really ask, what is the point of what they're doing? Are you really doing something that makes somebody happy? And that's the third question that often comes up. And this one's a little bit tricky for me, and I'll explain in a moment. Are you maximizing happiness is the question. Are you designing something that is going to be empathizing to the user, um, something that's inclusive, something that takes accessibility into account, something that checks in with the user groups all the time to make sure that you're making the right decisions for them, something that's not collecting a lot of data and selling it. Happiness is a very subjective thing, though, and I don't really agree with this sort of neo neoliberal interpretation posed in the question, uh, and I don't think it's very effective because 
there are so many apps that have such high socioeconomic, political, and cultural stakes, like you know, contact tracing apps, that the app is not premised upon happiness. It's premised upon staying alive. I think it's very difficult to design an app that's about keeping somebody alive while thinking about um, you know, maximizing their, their joy on a day-to-day basis. So I don't think it's a super effective question, but uh, it, it's a good way to start. I think being familiar with these questions is a good way to educate ourselves as a population. And if you ever have a chance to talk to an app designer, you can raise those questions yourselves, I suppose. <laughs> and hey, it's it's almost like anything. I mean, you can set up a roadside stand and sell just about anything. And it doesn't mean that people have to buy it. If I make cupcakes full of rocks, I'm not going to sell too many of those. So hopefully the apps that equate to cupcakes full of rocks just kind of go by the wayside. It must be difficult to get something like that into to mass consumption, I'm sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you know, like not. A, a, a cupcake full of rocks, I mean, it, it's not... <laughs> You're going to run into a lot of problems in a lot of different ways, I think. And I think one of the major hurdles to you selling a cupcake full of rocks is that there's a political economy behind the product or the commodity that uh, is going to check and make sure through quality assurance testing that your cupcake is not full of rocks. And I think this is one of the major issues then when it comes to app ethics is because the dark design that I just discussed is an evaluation of ethics of an application or a commodity from the outside in. There aren't a lot of rigorous measures out there to ensure that they're ethical from the inside out. And this is where we run into the the problem of surveillance capitalism. And surveillance capitalism essentially means taking someone's personal information, turning it into a commodity purely for profit purposes. And the way in which you do all of this is by monitoring people, by making them visible, by spying on them, by collecting discrete data to, you know, make money. Um, you know, if <laughs> you're going to talk about ethics from the inside out of building cupcakes with rocks in them, but you probably wouldn't have to bite into it or a quality assurance person to figure out that it's full of rocks and probably going to break your teeth. <laughs> but when you when you download an app, it's really hard to see what's inside. And I think trying to understand ethics of an app from the inside out is one of the major challenges for privacy, uh, liberal uh, liberal expression, freedom of, of expression, and protection of rights in the 21st century. It's really, really hard to open up one of these things. And I, I think that's where the discourse and the debates around ethics and apps really needs to shift. Dark design is great, but if we can't open the cupcake up and take the rocks out, we're in some really big trouble. Well said. Well, Dr. Cook, we really appreciate the time once again, and uh, thank you for taking my cupcake full of rocks and turning it into something edible. I uh, I really appreciate that. I hope I never, ever have to eat one, Mike. <laughs> hey, I don't cook well, and there there may be a reason. You're starting to figure out why that is. You keep <laughs> safe, my friend. We'll talk again. Likewise. Take care, London. That is Dr. Thomas Cook from Queen's University. As we look at app ethics and the idea that there isn't a governing body and there, there is a lot to go into this. And as Dr. Cook said, you, you want to create, in the example of the COVID alert app, something that's going to keep people safe and still find a way to keep them alive. And you, at the same time, have to gain their trust with it without that governing body other than the government saying, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. That's the gold star right there. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.